Welcome to Sports BKC, a sports podcast presented by the Kansas City Star. I'm Blair Kirkhoff. Kansas beat writer Jesse Newell joins us to talk about the Jayhawks. This week, Jesse inked an interesting story about KU's playing style options for next season based on roster composition. We talk about that, the never-ending recruiting season, and the impact of the proposed move to drop the three-point arc to the international distance. Interesting story on how Kansas will play next season, Jesse, which essentially comes down to playing with two bigs or a four-guard lineup. Uh, you wrote about that. Let me let me ask you first of all, what was what was your inspiration for for tackling that topic? <laughs> well, it's the off season, and there's lots <laughs> yeah. of inspiration that comes to you in the off season. But now we grabbed Bill Self uh, during his you know fantasy camp. He holds for older. Uh, people who want to come in and, uh, you know, get an experience about Fieldhouse and what it's like to play for the Jayhawks with scouting report, all those sorts of things. But uh, we grabbed him off to the side, and I kind of had wondered about that just because things have changed for Bill Self in recent years. He used to be the guy that, you know, two bigs every year, run the high-low. Everybody kind of knew they were going to score easy baskets, get angles, those sorts of things. And it's just changed a little bit over the last three years. They've gone a lot to the four-guard lineup and um, dribble drive and spacing the floor, all those sorts of things. So I just kind of wondered in my own mind what he would prefer this year just because they're getting Yudoka Azabuki back for this season. Uh, but he had great success two years ago uh, when Kagan went to the Final Four and beat Duke in the Elite Eight with playing four around one and him getting a lot of space inside. And then last year they started off playing two bigs with Diederik Lawson and Yudoka Azabuki. Had some success doing it. They were 9-0 and with that lineup before Yudoka Azabuki went out with his wrist injury. So I just wondered from Bill Self kind of what he thought or what his preference was. And he thinks that if they are have their full complement, which I sort of read as if they get Silvio de Sosa back this year, that their best lineup is going to be with two bigs, and that makes a lot of sense. But if that isn't the case and they need to adjust on the fly, then they're going to play four guards. And I think that's the sort of comfort level he has right now is that they can be flexible, and he has these two different offenses and these two different ways he can play. So uh, still a lot to be determined for KU when it comes to recruiting, but uh, for right now, I think if Bill Self gets all the pieces that he thinks he might have for next season, that KU could have a lot of two big looks, and they could have some success with that, just like they did last year when they had Dietrich Lawson and Udo Gazabuki. I thought he had an interesting line uh, toward the end of your story when he said, look, it's it's never a bad, essentially, it's never a bad thing to have an alternative way of playing. And it, it, it would give Kansas something of an advantage, wouldn't it? Let's just say that DeSouza is ruled eligible. And so he and Doak are back and they, they, they start. But if Kansas faces, I don't know, a, a team that that doesn't have any bigs, really. And, and some college teams, some in the Big 12, are like that. It would be to his, you know, probably to, you know, to, to his advantage to, to go small. And he would have the ability to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of the versatility you're looking for, just that you're not pigeonholed into only one way of playing. And I think for so long, um, how good Kansas was with the two big look is that it was sort of less adjusting to your opponent and more just kind of. Uh, Bill Self has a famous quote from back in the day. Uh, I think it was at one of his banquets where he said, we do what we do. And that's kind of what Kansas did for a long time is that they did what they did. And it worked out for, you know, 85% of the time with which, what, whatever his win percentage was. But yeah, nowadays you see more variety in lineups. You see more variety when it comes to defensive styles and teams that can switch. And so 
for Bill Self to be able to have a different method that they can go to is good for in-game. It's also good for just in general. I mean, you looked at last year. He thought and he envisioned his staff all throughout the summer that, okay, they have Diedrich Lost, who's a great big man who can stretch the floor and pass it well, and they have Yudoka Azubuki, so they came up with all these plays, all these sets to do things so they could run these two big looks, and then all of a sudden Yudoka Azubuki's out. So they go back very quickly to a four-guard lineup. It didn't work out perfectly. I mean, Kansas didn't have one of their amazing years last year, but at least gave them a different option where they went back to a four-guard lineup, they went back to an offense that had worked for them the previous two years, and they at least had a plan B when the plan A was not an obvious thing that was going to work anymore. So I think he's right in that aspect that it's always good to have options. It's always good to uh, have a couple different ways you can play. KU should have that with this roster either way next year, but I think Bill Self is going to try to fit his pieces the best, and it depends on what those pieces are. We don't have those answers as of this at this point yet for what the 2019-2020 roster is going to be. And Kansas was, I believe, 9-0 and when, when Doak and, and Lawson played together. Is that right? Was it something like that? Not, they, they were undefeated when uh, – I, I know they had their biggest wins of the season, the Michigan State win, the Villanova, uh, Tennessee, with, when, when they had the two bigs. Yeah, Marquette, too. Yeah, the KU was 9-0. and And then uh, I also did a, a piece about a week ago about KU's dunks, which was uh, – Yudoka Azubuki had 33 dunks in the nine games that he played. So it's not like he was not getting the ball at the rim or not scoring at the rim when KU was playing with two bigs last year. He was very successful doing that. And KU had some close games, uh, some very close calls throughout those nine games. So I don't want to talk about like this was uh, KU was setting the college basketball world on fire. They were a very, very good team at that point. But um, at, at the same point, Bill Self's two-big offense was working when they had two pieces like Diedrich and Udoka who could complement each other and work off each other. And I think that was going to only get better over time as they learned to play um, you know, better together. But uh, we never got to see that. So we'll see what happens with this next season and what pieces fall to Kansas. And kind of exactly as you put it, Blair, how are they going to work the offense around Udoka Azubuki? Because that's how it's worked when he's been in the last couple of years. And you figure that's how it's going to work this next year when they have him back for his senior season. I wanted to ask you about that, that dunk story. I thought that was really interesting as well. Kansas had qu- has had quite an advantage uh, for, for the longest time in, in that department. And that it just sounds obvious, right? Kansas has the bigger, better players. They're going to they're gonna end up with more dunks. But, but there is qu- quite the competitive advantage going on when, when you're getting, I don't know, three, four more dunks a game th- than your opponent. And even though it's not an official NCAA stat, it's it, it speaks to a, a philosophy and a method that Kansas has used effectively um, because they've had the players to do it for one. But um, that that's that's a part of the KU game. Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at this, Blair. Um, I asked Bill Self at Media Days probably five or six years ago, Big Twelve Media Days. I just said, "Hey, what?" Give me in a sentence or two why you think you've had success over time or or what you think the reason for it is, what your personal philosophy is. And the thing he said at that time is kind of all stuck with me. He said, I think the teams that win are the ones that get easy baskets and don't give up easy baskets. So for a long period of time, that's what KU has done. And I can talk a lot about kind of the Bill Self term scoring with angles. It's where you reverse the ball side to side. You get it where a a big man has basically the defender on his backside. You throw the ball up over the top. He's able to catch the ball and score without a defender between him and the rim. A lot of times those are dunks. So that's been an effective way for KU to score for the past 16 years under Bill Self. And it's been 
the most effective way for KU to score, for being completely honest, over that course of time. It's how KU's won a bunch of games. But there's kind of another factor to this when it comes to dunks because KU last year had a lot of layups. You know, Devon Dotson got to the rim pretty well, and Diedrich Lawson had some of his you know, own shots or offensive rebounds to get inside. So they had a lot of dunks. They had a lot of shots at the rim. There is just something about a dunk, though. And for one, as you would expect, it's more successful. It goes down more often than a layup would because it's not getting blocked as often. But for two, I think Bill Self believes in this, too, that just that there's an emotional lift. There's a bit of a momentum change when you can be athletic and put down a slam dunk. And it's one of those kind of uh, I don't know, macho things that happens and gets the crowd going and everybody's excited and it brings energy. And a lot of times last year, I think that sometimes KU might have lacked some of that energy and really couldn't get itself going. And you could sort of point to a lack of athleticism or a lack of dunks for, as the reason for that. So I think Bill Self, if you're him, you circle that number and you say, how can you get more athletic in the offseason? How can you build a team that is more exciting around the rim and not be so boring, as he said, around the rim? And I think with Yudoka as a that's the biggest first step they can take because uh, obviously he set a new decade record for dunks two years ago when KU went to the Final Four. Uh, if you were looking for more dunks this next season, he's the one key factor. KU's going to get him back, and you should expect a lot more of those baskets at the rim this next year than you saw in 2018-2019. Well, that's how he ended up. Uh, was it like the second greatest field goal percentage for a season in NCAA history, something like that? Uh, it was in, because of the you know, largely because of the dunks. He was he hit about what 75% of his. I can't remember what the number was. But it's a ridiculous, ridiculously high number field goal percentage for for Azubuki in the Final Four year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can look at a number real quick. I think it was around seventy-seven percent, which is crazy. You got to think that not very often that guys have almost double the two-point percentage that they do the free throw percentage. But uh, that's how <laughs> right. Azubuki was that year. It was actually seventy-seven percent on the dot for him. Uh, two hundred eleven out of two hundred seventy-four. So yeah, number one nationally, and nobody had shot that well. I think maybe one player in the last twenty years since uh, that stat had been kept, or or whatever records I could find. And then yeah, the free throw percentage that year. 45 of 109, so 41%. So almost double the accuracy from two-point range as from free throw percentage. Uh, that's not That doesn't happen very often. P- pretty efficient stuff. So, hey, so some of what we're talking about here, maybe a lot of it depends on, on, on as you said, roster makeup. And let, let's, uh, we'll, we'll go down that road. We'll start with Silvio de Souza. Uh, any, any, any update on, on him? What, hearing anything? There's always, you know, there's always some, I, they're not even. I don't. Not even strong enough to call them hints or clues. But whenever you go on social media, there's, you know, it just seems to be something to, you know, to to change. The story changes or the narrative changes every week or so with him. But what what have you heard? What what's what's going on? What's the latest with Silvio? Yeah, nothing official. Um, you know, there is a built-in deadline here, which is May 29th, obviously, because uh, that's the deadline for him to decide whether he's going to stay in the NBA draft or return to school. And he's already said that if his suspension from the NCAA is reduced from two years to one year with the appeal, that he'll come back to Kansas. And these cases with the NCAA, they have the student-athletes' welfare in mind. I mean, they want to make these rulings so that these sorts of kids are not left hanging out to dry and waiting on a decision so that they can't make the best decision uh, what would be in their best interest. So, you know, I still get the feeling KU is optimistic about this potentially being reduced to one year, but yet uh, this is not a process that has been completed yet. Now, it's sort of dangerous to say this on a podcast. Somebody somebody might be checking us out next week, and it might have been decided by now. But as of Wednesday afternoon, uh, nothing. 
I would still expect I, – I know I KU fans hate to hear me say soon because they've heard soon with Sylvia Sosa a lot lately. But I would still expect something either late this week or early next week with a decision from the NCAA. It still seems to me like uh, – or, or kind of from what I've gathered that uh, once all sides are heard that they should make a ruling pretty quick so that he can get on with whatever he needs to get on with uh, and kind of determine whether he needs to go pro or come back to Kansas for another year. Wednesday afternoon around 2.30 p.m. Central Time, to be more uh, specific on that. So, hey, so the latest piece of information was him and the, and the NBA Combine. He was uh, – t- tell me about that. He, 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 pulled his, he pulled his name out or wasn't involved. He was and then wasn't involved with the, the G League uh, part of the NBA Combine, Draft Combine. <laughs> Yeah, so it's sort of interesting. I know a lot of fans were trying to read the tea leaves with this because originally he was supposed to go to the NBA G League Combine or mini camp as they have it, and he decided not to go. We were all kind of wondering that. Uh, our Gary Bedore from the Kansas City Star reached out to Fenny Falmain, who is his legal guardian, and he said the reason that Sylvia didn't go is because his focus, if he goes professional, would be the NBA. So he didn't want to go to the G League uh, mini camp. So there was that portion of it. He was scheduled to go last Friday to the Atlanta Hawks uh, workout. He'd ended up not going. Quentin Grimes went to that. It was sort of funny. I was up on campus on Friday and uh, was sitting working in the Bruce Center, and I looked up, and Sylvia DeSosa was walking by me going to lunch, and I thought, Boy, they must be flying really quick flights from Atlanta back to Kansas City nowadays because I can't imagine he got in a workout and was still back there. So, yeah, no, he didn't actually go to that one, but he did go to one for the Utah Jazz uh, earlier this week. So, uh, again, if you're trying to read the tea leaves with that, it's kind of confusing because he didn't go to the G League mini camp and he didn't go to the Atlanta Hawks workout, but he did go to the Utah Jazz one. So uh, I, I think it's kind of difficult to know from all those indications one way or the other how he might be feeling about this. So uh, for right now, I think all that stuff is just sort of um, interesting, but not something you can really put your finger on as as proof of one way or the other or him having knowledge one way or the other. So we'll just have to wait to see how all this plays out. Gotcha. So uh, so we'll yeah, we'll know in a week and a half, I guess. Right. May 29th, the, at least by then, the, the, the deadline for, for the NBA draft uh, entry. Uh, continuing down the path of, of roster makeup, um, the the never ending um, recruiting uh, season continues for for Kansas. I'll just we'll, we'll go over a couple of names and talk about their status uh, and how that's changed over the last few weeks. Let's start with. I hope I'm pronouncing the last name correctly. Precious Achua. Is that Precious Achua? You got it. At least uh, you didn't have to pronounce his brother's name, which uh, would be easier. Uh, God's gift. I don't know oh, if you remember back right. in the day to recruit God's yeah. gift. To Chua, yeah, uh, with, we with, with the apostrophe, the right? Where's the apostrophe coming? Yes. God's gift. Uh, it, I, yeah, between the D and the S, that's exactly <laughs> where uh, it needs to be. But yes, Precious Chua, uh, a recruit, top twenty guy, uh, power forward. Uh, Zag's blog today uh, on Wednesday, uh, Adam Zagoria, one of the college basketball analysts out there, has reported that he is down to either Kansas or Memphis. It's sort of been fascinating the last few days that Penny Hardaway in the last. Uh, over the course of the last week, has picked up three different recruits, which has left Memphis with only one remaining scholarship. And Precious has been linked to Memphis quite a bit, so it would not be surprising if he did that. But uh, Zagoria today said that his um, his prediction was that Precious would go to Kansas and that Kansas 
just from what I'm hearing, has sort of made some ground on Precious. Uh, about a week or two ago, I would have told you they didn't have much chance with him, but it seems like KU and the staff has made up some ground. I apologize to these people who are listening to us three days in the future on Saturday because that is his decision day. So you guys are more knowledgeable than us right now. You know where Precious Achua is going to play his college basketball next season. But uh, this would be a really good gift for Kansas. I mean, the thing about it is, again, top 20 recruit, and you're talking about a six foot nine forward. This definitely would be Silvio de Sosa insurance if Bill Self did indeed want to play two bigs with uh, someone else alongside Yudoka Azubuki next season. Even if Silvio was not declared eligible for next season, Precious could step right in. It seems like it could give KU a very nice two-big look, and it would be another example of Bill Self pulling out a spring recruiting rabbit out of the hat. Has happened before uh, in, in the last four or five years. Yeah, he he strikes me as the kind of guy that steps in and and uh, and, and starts immediately for for the Jayhawks if if that's the direction he goes. Okay, the other one we've talked about him before. Uh, how close is R.J. Hampton to making a decision? Yeah, that's another one that's sort of interesting. Uh, as of a couple weeks ago, he said that he wanted to wait till July. He wanted to kind of play on the summer circuit before making a decision, and that was when he said he wanted to reclassify to the 2019 class. Since then, he's kind of pushed up that deadline uh, a month or two and said that he wants to make a decision sooner rather than later, and that includes on his social media account, which on his bio, if you guys go click on it, it says something like, uh, to the extent of, you will have the answer you are looking for very soon. So uh, all indications are that he's going to decide very shortly here. And once again, Kansas and Memphis were kind of the main two on him. Uh, You would expect Kansas to be He's sort of in the lead for him. If you look at kind of all the crystal balls and the prognosticators looking at uh, kind of the the tea leaves of what has happened with his recruitment lately, the only thing that Kansas probably needs to be a little bit more concerned about than maybe some other recruits is that uh, the at least the option of going and playing professionally overseas has been brought up with R.J. Hampton. And so that might be something uh, to keep an eye on because uh, college might not be his destination, or at least it's a possibility that it's not his destination. That's not always the case with a top 100 recruit. But it could be the case with R.J. Hampton, who uh, a top five guy expected to be a lottery pick next year. But once again, uh, if Bill Self signed him in the late period, then that would be a slam dunk home run for uh, Bill Self and his staff. And another indication that uh, this Kansas basketball team could be pretty good next year even if there was a time period in the last month or so where recruiting looked a little bit shaky okay jesse let, let's hit some uh let's hit some topics uh, maybe uh in short order fashion uh the, the nba combine as we mentioned is uh upon us up in chicago and there are three kansas players there uh Diedrich lawson quentin grimes devon dotson I don't see any of them right now in certainly in in any mock draft first rounds. And I've seen kind of maybe each of those guys in and out of second rounds, usually late second rounds. Take mock drafts for what you you know, what you will. What what, uh, what's your expectation on draft night for at least for 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 uh, for Lawson and for Grimes? And then uh, is is Dodson's, you know, KU future dependent on what he hears in Chicago this these next few days? Yeah, we can go one by one here. With Diedrich Lawson, I I think that you kind of know what you're getting there. Uh, I I think probably for him, the best case scenario is sort of that mid to late second round because he is probably a pretty high floor guy, but a very low ceiling guy. And maybe what makes it better is there's been a player like George Niang in the last couple of years who's found a niche in the NBA when everybody kind of wanted to go 
length and athleticism and he, he kind of at least found a way to make it work where you're mostly based off of skill and that's sort of Dietrich Lawson's game you know he's not super athletic he can rebound but he's not going to jump over you and uh, a lot of what he does is is based off of him kind of outsmarting you and wiggling around you that sort of thing but he's never going to be mistaken for a huge leaper he's not going to wow you with any dunks he only had two during his junior season at Kansas so uh, I, I still think for him, I mean, yeah, probably late second round is what you're looking at, and and teams could take a chance on that to know that hey, that's a solid role player guy on the bench that you can turn to it and maybe get you a few points a game without the highest of expectations for thinking that down the line he's going to be one that leads you to the promised land. But for a second round pick, you probably don't have many of those guys available left anyway. For Quentin Grimes, uh, he has the potential to work his way up. He seems to me like a guy that. You know, if he's just in workouts at the NBA Combine, he'll probably measure well, uh, you know, do the, some of those drills pretty well. And you, I've seen him on different mocks, you know, working his way to the 60s. So it uh, wouldn't be shocking if he got his way maybe to the very end of the second round. And remember, this was a guy that we projected as a lottery pick going into last season. So, I mean, I know he had a tough year at Kansas and things didn't work out from there. But how much... Are NBA scouts going to just take that one sample size, that 130 games, and think that they've changed their mind completely over the course of a year? That'll be something to answer. But indications I get are that he's pretty set on the NBA. It would take something pretty drastic for him to change his mind and return to Kansas. Uh, it seems like he is ready to start his professional future, no matter whether that's being drafted or not drafted. Uh, the last thing, Devon Dotson, it's sort of Interesting with him because you can read the language from the KU release when it was announced that Devon Dotson was uh, testing the waters for pros. And uh, KU and Bill Self made it very clear that they expected Devon Dotson to come back and that he was just sort of gathering information. Whereas with Devon Dotson, he was, you know, he, he's gone out and, and done everything here. And we haven't heard as much from his side of it. But what I've talked to, when I've talked to NBA people, I've kind of gotten different answers. I've, from one person who said, hey, he needs to come back. He'd be great at Kansas next year. He needs to work more in ball screen settings, become more like Frank Mason and Devontae Graham were their junior and senior seasons. And I heard someone say, look, it's a really weak point guard draft. And, you know, NBA people like his speed. They like his defense, and he'd probably get drafted. So really what it comes down to is a question that we can't answer unless we get inside the minds of Devon Dotson and his family and the people around him, which is if you figure that you're going to be taken at the end of the second round, is that good enough? You know, is, is that what you're striving for? Do you want to develop at the NBA level? Do you want to you know, take that and move on with your life? Or do you come back to Kansas? I've seen some 2020 mock drafts where he's potentially a late first-round pick. Do you immediately become, you know, the Big 12 preseason player of the year or at least an all Big 12 first team member? And potentially, you know, you're the guy that's shown uh, on the highlights or on SportsCenter or the promos of Big Monday. And you're the guy that is really the go to guy for Kansas coming up this next season. And then you can maybe parlay that into a first round pick next year. Uh, nobody really can answer that except for Devon Dotson and his family. And I don't know what the correct option is. And until the NCAA figures out a way to get its players to get paid a little bit more, uh, you also have to look at it from Dotson's standpoint, which is, do you want to trade an unpaid year of your services, which is the NCAA, for a paid one? Which, I mean, I don't know how long he's going to play in the professional ranks. You know, five, six, seven years is probably what guys normally do. Uh, so there's a lot of risk and reward to take into account there. But 
I still think those people around the program think he's coming back, and they believe that he's going to be uh, the leader on next year's Kansas team. I just think that for Devon Dotson, there at least is a choice to be made there. And from what I've gathered from NBA people, that they like him enough that they would probably take him at the end of the second round as a development project. And if that's something he'd be interested in, then there might be a path for him there. If not, then he's a potential first-round pick if he comes back to Kansas. There are some risks with that as well. You know, all, all circumstances were different, but I, I think he was more developed and had a better freshman year than, than Frank Mason, who went on to become National Player of the Year, and certainly Devontae Graham, who became a you know consensus first-team All-American. You know, both Graham and Mason completed their eligibility at Kansas. I don't, under any, I don't see Dotson doing that at all, but uh, I, I think he would have the potential as a sophomore to be the you know a first team All America uh, along with Azubuki, I, I think Kansas could have the best big man in college basketball and one of the one of the best point guards in college basketball if. As you say, that's what he chooses to do. Yeah, and it's sort of fascinating with Kansas right now because it, it's it's like I talked about with my conversation with Bill Self, where it's almost unfair to ask him if he wants to play four bigs or four four guards <laughs> or two bigs. Four bigs would be a, a great style of play. If he wants to play four guards or two bigs at this point, just because, I mean, think about the different branches of what could happen here over the next three weeks. I mean, what if you get R.J. Hampton and Sylvia's declared ineligible or his suspension is upheld and Devon Dotson comes back. Well, that looks like a four-guard lineup to me. Yep. Okay, well, what if Sylvia DeSosa comes back and you get Precious Achua and Devon Dotson decides to stay in the pros? Okay, well, that sounds like a two-big lineup to me. You know what I mean? So so there's all sorts of things that still can, still can happen, and that's not usually the case on May 15th. So uh, this Kansas team, a lot of it is still in kind of to-be-determined mode, but uh, the biggest piece for them, obviously, was Yudoka Azubuki coming back for his senior year, and that provides them a nice base and a nice floor both on the offensive and defensive end just because he's really good at dunking and he's really good at protecting the rim uh, and keeping guys away from it, at least giving them a presence to think about and so that's a good starting point no matter who else you have but I'm sure Kansas uh, would love to get uh, some good news on a couple of these players coming down the stretch here in the last weeks of May. Okay Jesse a final question for you trying to think was it late last week yeah late last week the NCAA uh, rules committee will, will send to the governing body the proposal to move the three-point line back more than a foot to the international distance of 21 or 22 feet, almost two inches. It's 21 one and three quarters, and uh, that's that is uh, quite a quite a change from the current 20 feet and nine inches of of college basketball's current three-point line. I, I think this is essentially a rubber stamp. It's going to happen. Um, I, I know some colleges are already starting to repaint their floors with a new international line. But how is this uh, potentially, you know, first of all, generally, what do you think of the rule and how might it impact the Jayhawks? Yeah, I think it was this was coming. I mean, this was something that I wrote about, I think, three or four years ago when I was asked to, for the Wichita Eagle to kind of predict the future for for Kansas basketball. You try to put little tidbits in there of what might happen. And I said, when NCAA you know, adopted the FIBA three-point line in 2020. I put that in this article and it said it was 2019. So I guess I was one year <laughs> off in my little Nostradamus prediction. Um, how it will affect KU? I mean, for this particular Kansas team as it shapes right now, it's probably not a great thing just because it doesn't have the shooters as it did a couple years ago. I mean, if you're looking at two years ago, you wouldn't mind if Malik Newman was shooting it from the normal three-point range or from FIBA or Sue McKayluk from either one because they could make either one of those shots. But for Kansas, they're sort of struggling to find guys who can make them that are kind of cozied up to the line. And now you move it back a little bit more. You could see, at least for a team like that, maybe trying to force it inside or create driving lanes a little bit more. However, 
I will say this. What's fascinating about this, the real advantage might be, and I wrote about this a year ago, where uh, if people want to Google it, I wrote a story that said, we're looking at deep three-pointers all wrong in college basketball. Here's why. There was some data out there from Will Schriefer online, uh, a guy that uh, on Twitter who sort of just went through all the play-by-play data and found one spot where they were tracking how deep three-pointers were. And it's sort of fascinating. It's not what you would think, but the data shows us that a lot of times that college guys can make NBA three-pointers, and the percentage of those are not that much worse than when they are cozied up against the line. And so you saw a lot of teams out there. Villanova was number one on the list. Michigan was second on the list. Marshall was number three on the list. That's brother D'Antoni, who uh, is coaching Marshall with all his analytic thoughts in his head. A lot of teams were gaining an advantage because they were spacing their players further out. And while it doesn't make much sense to think, okay, you want to shoot a three-pointer from a couple feet from beyond the line, that sounds stupid. That sounds like something a coach would never say. Those teams were gaining an advantage because they were spacing the floor better, and they were also opening up shooters a little bit more. And really where the delineation is, is you make more threes when they're open rather than when you're up against the line and teams can close out on you a little bit quicker, and that makes the three-point shot a little bit tougher. So there might be an advantage to be had here, uh, Blair, for those teams that aren't just putting their toes right up against the line that continue to space the floor a little bit farther. And again, the last couple years, Villanova has led the nation in this. It's probably not a coincidence that they, for one, have really good shooters, but two, uh, they have a very analytical minded coach in Jay Wright who knows the value of spacing and knows that uh, by taking his guys a step further out he might be able to create some things offensively for both his inside players and his outside players but I do this think this will affect three-point shots I think teams will attempt fewer of them and then kind of like it always happens over time it starts creeping up creeping up creeping up and maybe in I don't know 2028 we'll have the discussion about them moving it back to the NBA three-point line just because players are getting more skilled and more skilled every single year and all of a sudden like I said, in 2028, the NBA three-point shot is probably going to be one that's about as easy as the FIBA three-point shot is right now for college athletes. You know, as you were talking about Villanova and Michigan last year, I was thinking about Auburn this season and the, um, the incredible number of three-point attempts that they had, the success they had at the three-point line. And, you know, just covering them in the regional in the Final Four, they, the ball movement was such that um, they were getting open looks from from 22, 23 feet, and that was a, just another team that took that has taken full advantage of that uh, uh, of of the three point line, and it got them got them to a Final Four this year. Yeah, and that's just something that it's hard to wrap your mind around if you don't think about it logically. Because in what sport do you get? rewarded for being further away from the goal i mean do you get three points in soccer if you shoot one from outside the box no i mean that's not the way it works in baseball do you get you know an extra run if you hit it 500 feet or if you stand you know a few feet back behind a home plate i mean in football do you get three points for or do you get seven points for a field goal and three points for a touchdown no you get closer to the goal line to score more points but in basketball it's just a little bit different the three-point line makes things a little bit you know different in terms of how do you get open three-point shots, and, and how are you maximizing the value of those three-point shots you get? And so, again, I don't think a lot of teams are taking advantage of this because they just don't understand maybe logically what this means. If you space out a little bit further, you're going to be open more, and you're also going to open things up in, inside more for other players. Now, the problem for teams like Kansas is you have to have shooters that can make those shots, and uh, this might not be the Kansas team to do it as currently constructed because they don't have the Sumi colleagues. They don't have the Blake Newmans. They don't have the Devontae Grahams, the Frank Masons of the world that they've had in the past. But for those teams out there like Villanova, 
who have recruited to that and Michigan and Auburn, if you can play to that, then that seems like maybe a little small edge you can get on your opponents. And we've seen teams be successful with that over the course of the last two years. Very good, Jesse. Hey, really enjoyed the chat. We'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good, Blair. Appreciate it. Links to the stories we discussed can be found in the show notes and on KansasCity.com. This has been Sportsbeat KC, a sports podcast of the Kansas City Star. I'm Blair Kirkhoff. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon to talk Kansas City sports.